hello and welcome to another episode of the Two Medics Podcast. My name is Imran Lasker. I'm a consultant radiologist. And hi, I'm Dusha Gunwardner. I'm a cardiology registrar specialising in intervention. I know I say this a lot, don't I, Thrusha, that we've got a very special guest, but I, I feel like this one, I mean, how many hats do you want to put on? Uh, go for it. Please, please do introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, my name is Shabhangi. I'm an academic intern at the moment in St. James's Hospital in Dublin in Ireland. My work at the moment is across the intensive care unit and then in academic psychiatry. Um, what else do I do? I mean, oh, yeah. what don't um, you do I'm is a... probably the question to really <laughs> ask. <laughs> I don't know. I, I suppose medicine-relevant-wise, I'm a trainee editorial editor for the British Journal of Psychiatry and a reviewer for the International Journal of Medical Ethics. And you're going to be doing a TED Talk? Oh, yes. And I do public speaking sometimes, like a TEDx talk I'm doing in University College Cork on March the 12th. Cool. Are you excited wow. about that? I am very excited <laughs> to be doing a speaking event in person again. Yeah, wow. I'm incredibly excited to actually be in person in Cork, my favorite place on earth. Right. And yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about just something that is very intrinsic to myself. I suppose I get asked to talk a lot either around, you know, my research and editorial work, my medicine work or around DEI stuff as a disabled, queer, person of color, migrant, whatever. Mm. I don't very often get asked to just talk about what drives me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to this talk because I just want to talk to people about, you know, what is it that you would give to live the life that you want to lead? And ultimately, you know, making, you know, the big changes in your life, actually just being about becoming more accepting of change and becoming mm. more accepting of uncertainty and making friends with it. So yeah, really looking forward to it. So, I mean, what language are you gonna be doing it in? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. English probably, you know, a couple of fuckle of Felga because gotta, gotta wrap that Irish in Cork. Um, yeah, who knows, probably some French. It's very hard for me to keep my languages straight in my head but well i mean this yeah. this podcast would be perfect this is a perfect practice for you because we're so highbrow i mean i mean we're going to talk about who <laughs> fell out with who on twitter aren't we so this is this is all good it's all like, See, yeah, like well. this is the thing i <laughs> like you know being a neurodivergent doctor like you know in a hospital setting and being a junior doctor i'm very much in the space where i think there's some degree of autistic burnout or whatever is happening at the moment. Everything in the world is so overwhelming mm. that I very much find that when I'm in work and I get a bit of free time, you know, I will literally just close the door in the on-call room and just spend some time alone decompressing. Like, I really don't do gossip. Mm. I've always been like this. Like, I remember in after my master's year, it took me like three years to figure out that I think two of them were engaged within a year. <laughs> <laughs> and like they're they're great people they're very nice it's just i'm really bad at gossip <laughs> i save my gossip for strangers on twitter <laughs> yeah, us too us too yeah exactly i mean twitter just facilitates the the larger conversation i guess of medicine and all the rest of it isn't it that's what it does for us anyway um because i mean there's so there is so much going on there are so many sentiments that go flying around and we've had some very juicy subjects this week um 
and some bigger things that are happening in the wider world. We, I mean, Athrusha, you you want to tell us all about uh, Ukraine, didn't you? You want to explain the whole thing about Ukraine? Oh God! Oh uh, <laughs> uh, no! But I feel like we should mention the fact that it just see this kind of awful stuff's going on in the background, isn't it? And I feel like yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is. We just need like a nice like verbal of existential misery, you know? Like yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it just feels like a, a big bully uh, come coming into someone else's territory, yeah. isn't it? I mean, that's just I mean, what it feels like. Yeah, but I mean, you know, like if we're mentioning big things that are happening in the world, something that's very big and probably also relevant to healthcare is what's happening to the other side of us in Texas, where trans rights are being systematically eradicated, particularly the rights of trans young people mm-hmm. whose parents are now liable to being called abusers if they support their kids mm-hmm. having rights, you know, like wow. what Abbott is doing there is horrific. So, yeah, there is a a lot of misery happening. I mean, you know, like my trans siblings, I suppose, in spirit. Mm. We are going through a very difficult time and seeing anybody standing up for people, anybody standing up for vulnerable people is really hard, particularly practitioners. Mm. I saw a tweet. Oh, look at me. I mentioned Twitter in a podcast that is about Twitter people. I did it. <laughs> Good. But Get I, out I saw, the way. I saw a tweet recently. <laughs> I think it was yesterday that mm-hmm. basically said, you know, I will get into trouble, good trouble and necessary trouble for the sake of my patients. Mm. And that kind of solidarity for healthcare workers with trans people anywhere in the world is so rare to see. So, mm. yeah, there's some big scary things happening, which maybe, you know, we know a little bit more about and can show a little bit more solidarity to. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we're talking about bullying as well. You know, uh, and I think I feel like... Um, I think we could, Mehul did a tweet this week, didn't he, about NHS response to bullying, and they and people just say, well, that's just that's just what they're like, and it is kind of tempting to say that about life, isn't it? Well, that's just what life's like, and you feel like, well, is it good enough? Is it just good enough to sit here and say that? Well, that's just the way things are. Let's just keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of sort of replies to that sentiment, and the sort of that sentiment does fly around sometimes when you do feel like there's not really much you can do, just one small person on the bigger, on the bigger, um, on the bigger picture. Um, and Trisha, you were saying, weren't you, that you were getting a lot of messages about this particular tweet, no? Yeah. About this, um, yeah, yeah. people well, I mean, situation. Yeah, some of the replies, though, the kind of um, just really interesting, you know, the kind of co- the kind of way that these things kind of get swept away. Some of them were really mm. like, uh, it's interesting. I'm sure we've all heard them before. Just used to high standards. They'd be mortified if they knew your reaction. They're just mm. old school. Um, you need to learn to take feedback. Oh, when they get to know you, it'll be all right. But um, mm. I just wrote on, which is, um, what if by bringing it up, they turn it around and suggest you're the one with the problem and raise concerns about a trainee in distress. And mm. I got quite a few messages about people saying, this happened to me, this happened to me. Mm. Um, to, um, and so in in trying to raise concerns about a kind of an abusive senior, it just got kind of, suddenly they got turned upon, start, um, their feedback started to get really aggressive and negative. And they had to use kind of backup MSFs from before to kind of prove that they actually weren't in distress and they were getting referred to kind of the support um, support um, people. And it's just all just weaponized. Um, it's sad, really, that they were made to feel that way. Shibang, have you ever been in this situation or seen the situation where it's difficult to sort of feel like you need to stand up or other people um... find it difficult to stand up? I've, I've certainly been in this situation. Um, I've been threatened with a legal and corporate action, which is always really funny because I'm doing a diploma in medical law and I will go ahead to 
train as a barrister. So I'm like, oh, awesome. This is what we need, Trusha. If we if something <laughs> goes wrong, we can go to her and say, listen, help. <laughs> well, no, they did, like I want to work. I want to at least train as a lawyer specifically yeah. to vouchsafe the rights of NCHDs. I'm going to be giving training this year in my hospital. Yeah. Um, to NCHDs on knowing how to practice within their rights as well as practice within their responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important because, you know, like this doesn't just by any means extend to bullying and it doesn't, I feel, just extend to doctors. I mean, you know, you come in as interns the first year, the first like two months is just a hazing ritual across mm. all of the healthcare staff yeah. and being like, yeah, we, you know, you don't know better. And then eventually you get used to knowing better. And you get used to, you know, knowing your dignity at work policies, like the back of your hand, if you've any experience of harassment at med school as well. Um, and you definitely see people in situations where you could get harassed, you could get bullied. And then over time, people with absolutely no idea or, you know, no interest in what's happened to you will turn around and double down and say, you know, well, have you considered it's because you're a bit too mouthy? Have you considered it's because you're a bit too confident? You know, other people have been telling me this. They're too scared to tell you. Maybe it's you who's the bully. I'm like, girl, I did not grow up with like eight years of bullying in a UK single sex state grammar school mm. to make myself smaller for you. Yeah. Like, not worth it. And yeah, I, I think it's just... It's one of those things where people really like operating in hypotheticals because as long as they keep operating in hypotheticals, they they like nobody in theory can not point fingers, but point out, you know, a direct timeline of events as they happened or a direct cause and effect that might have happened or something that propagates over time. People really like to talk in hypotheticals about, you know, the chicken and egg situation of bullying which I think is an intrinsically a mischaracterization of how human interactions work. Human interactions are a back and forth. They're not really a chicken and egg situation. Hmm. Even if interactions get fractious, even if you know people on both sides of an argument or a tense situation have caused different kinds of harms. Hmm. Those are still like issues that need to be treated as significant for each person. They need to be treated from a view of support and not mm. a view of silencing. And when we do get silencing, we see, you know, pretty big, pretty big issues in healthcare coming up. For example, the uh, Irish situation that's happening at the moment with child and adolescent mental health services in Kerry. On one mm. hand, we have the scapegoating of this SHO mm -hmm. to get to, you know, completely let the agency get away with the larger failings of understaffing and under resourcing. But on the other hand, you have a consultant who was a whistleblower and then got put on a desk job mm. and was never allowed to actually speak up about the issue again until it came to light. I mean, th this is the problem, isn't it? There's always that sort of fear of, um, you know, standing, putting yourself out there and standing out or just is it just stick your head down and just get through whatever placement it is, whatever situation you're in. Um, and I often find or we've seen on Twitter, isn't it, that a lot of the time is sort of someone who has been through it all. Uh, from a long, long time ago, comes back and says, well, you know, back in my day, this is what it was like. Um, and I think Rosie kind of picks up on this on her tweet. Um, Hands down, the most useful comment on this is going to hurt. So anyone who encounters work-related burnout needs to question their mental su suitability. I mean, that's, and that is actually quoting, where did this come up, Thrusha? Was it in a paper, um, a doctor for life? Um, yeah. Do you want to read? You can do the you can do the old man voice. Go for it. I qualified as a doctor and started work as a houseman <laughs> in 1974. <laughs> and 
<laughs> but I mean, it's just so ridiculous, isn't it? The the best yeah. bit is, I would hate any budding doctor to get the idea that medical life is simply <laughs> unremitting misery. If you are mentally suited, I mean, he says that it is demanding but highly rewarding career. But it's really funny because somebody uh, posted another thing about him. What? Sorry, is that was that a good one? I don't know. Well, yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Sorry. Oh no, no, I, I think it's about as atrocious as it should sound. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I also like look at this man being like, I worked for twenty three days in a row with six nights off. Like, girl, I worked for twenty one days in a row, like just there in December. All I got for it was COVID, oh, yeah, <laughs> which kept me so off true. for a month. Like, that's what happens when you actually physically get burnt out. And mm. also, and also, I would like to know. You know, who was doing the cooking? Who was doing the cleaning? (laughs) Who was minding this man's house when he worked for 23 days in a row? Because when I did it, I was a shell of a human being. I mean, there's loads of things. Mate, there's loads of things. I mean, they had like paid for accommodation. They probably lived, you know, on site. They had their meals paid for. And I mean, it's just ridiculous. But it's, if they it's just food on a Sunday and a Saturday in work. They're already doing better than we are. Yeah, well, and the yeah. other thing was this guy that opens. This guy retired early as well because he said he talked about burnout. So it's like, what are you on about, mate? You literally, like the stuff that you're talking about, um, you actually said uh, causes burnout, and you retired early. So there's that. But the favorite reply, and the reason why I put this in there, was Ben Besker's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, and that yeah, I like was like, I need to store it. this in my memory banks, which is when he qualified, there were like three drugs and heart attacks were treated with bed rest so yeah. <laughs> there you go mate like, yeah things have changed a fair bit isn't it yeah, um, I, yeah. I, I just look at this man and I'm just like stop contradicting yourself stop contradicting yourself stop contradicting yourself <laughs> it's so true just, isn't it no sorry I just have a question have you guys actually watched this is going to hurt because I, have, I, have I don't have it here I, I think it's on the BBC so I don't yeah. get it here Mm. But I've read all of Adam's books and mm. I, you know, I, I saw him in the National Concert Hall when he was here just before the pandemic. Mm. And from what I can tell, like, I think people are really starting to conflate the characters he's created with, like, intrinsically being himself. Mm. No, I At think... least for, like, the show. I think people are so starting to focus this on one person because, you know, once again, you can find a scapegoat and you can say the scapegoat is mentally unsuitable. Mm. But if you're anything like me, you just go, yeah. Like, it, it is, what is that quote? I'm definitely paraphrasing here, but it's like that quote, you know, it is no measure of being well, like, it's no measure of wellness to, being well, to be well adjusted to a sick society. Mm. And uh, frankly, mm. grand, I am absolutely willing to take that I am not a doctor that is fit to work in a broken system because I'm the kind of doctor who wants to improve a system Hmm. or improve my life. But I mean, I think, isn't it, I mean, nobody really, nobody who actually works within the current system, uh, current framework, thinks that way. It's only, it's just these kind of old farts kind of like throwing shit from the sidelines. You know, they've been put Hmm. out to pasture and they're just still... You know, uh, they put themselves out to pasture early. Yeah, exactly. To avoid burnout. And you know, they're just <laughs> to avoid burnout. Yeah, and and they're just coming out with the stuff, and you're like, oh mate, just shut. Up. But the thing is, is that they kind of you know get posted in the Daily Mail and the Telegraph, and people are like, oh yeah, you know, but so, keep quiet, right? I think I think there's a whole other conversation to be had about you know the. Uh, demographic breakdown of columnists in the well, Daily Telegraph. But, yeah, uh... yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> but the funny thing is, do you see there was another tweet from Rosie which replied, where she replied and she said, um, I, I wish I could have heard these searing insights sooner. My bad. I'm listening and learning, my friend. <laughs> and I just oh, want to reply oh, more yes. often like that. <laughs> but you know with that person who had the similar vein of tweets, something interesting on Twitter happened where someone had subtweeted 
this person oh, yes. and then someone uh, also got upset with the subtweet and tagged yeah. them in so dobbing the person in for oh, subtweeting like them did you see this that's a snitch tweet I haven't actually seen this if you want to like throw some dick no because all I saw was everybody going oh my god where's the snitch tagger like for yeah. like 18 tweets of Edward was like where's the snitch tagger <laughs> I, was like, I don't know what's happening <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah while you're finding that just a point on like the whole I suppose like being a consultant or like you know reaching the end of your training as somebody who's going to start their training um like i was i was in an employment law lecture uh last weekend and mm. you know we were talking about i guess the square of practice where it's you know if you think you're unfit and workforce think you're unfit or like you know occupational health think you're unfit that's unfit to work if you think you're unfit but occupational health think you're fit it might be malingering in huge and heavy quotation marks Mm. And then if you think you're fit and work think you're fit, you're present. Mm. And if you're unfit but work think you're fit, you end up with presenteeism. You end up just like being oh. there while your soul drains out. Mm. You end up being there while your performance, like even for yourself, you know, let alone your performance for work. But your own performance starts to drop off. You know, you start to lose the things that make you happy outside of work. Then you start to lose your chores Then you start to lose your rest Then you start to lose your work. Hmm. And I, I think there is just something that is so, I don't know, it's so symptomatic of, I guess, this idea of like a very straightforward start and end medical training hmm. that I think exquisitely breeds this, which is probably why like I really want a portfolio career, hopefully take an out of training year next year to do some lecturing, hmm. maybe take some time away to just work in corporate consulting, you know, whatever. Hmm. Work as a lawyer, maybe. Hmm. I think maybe that helps people avoid their burnout because I was like, I think it was my final year placement. I was in the UK in like a crisis psychiatry service for a while. And I saw like a consultant who has been a mentor for a long time. But, you know, I saw this person genuinely actually turn up to work, turn up to work mm. at like 7 a.m. They do like, you know, 30 minutes of supervision, couple of hours of governance meetings, research meetings, and then start their clinical work. Hmm. And they and they what they like that? Yeah, because that you've got to do bits of things cool. that you actually wanted. Like I wouldn't mind being like I'm still up. You know, like I do two academic days a week at the moment in my protected mm. time. I do not mind waking up at like six thirty a.m. because at seven seven a.m. I have a call at seven p.m. Australian time for you know BJ mm. Psych editorial stuff. Mm. I don't mind doing that because you're getting yourself out of bed for something you want to do. But I think. That's the like that's the exact opposite of this sort of start and end career. By the end of which, surely you'd be like, "Do I want to be a consultant?" Mm, yeah, that's so true. That but is like, so true. Didn't you? I didn't really grow up ever really thinking that that was something that was like an option where you could kind of pick and choose exactly what you want to do. Because I'm like, yeah, if... oh, it's certainly not the case here. Like in Ireland, less than full time training even is a pipe dream. Uh, you know, particularly unless if like especially as an assigned female at birth person, if you are applying for it and your plan isn't, I'm applying for it so I can have a kid, you're almost mm. guaranteed not to get it because they will just assume, oh, but you'll need less than full time again if you decide to have a kid. Which is mm. like not the vibe with me. I just want to go do all my crazy stuff and like, you know, go do 8 billion other work things. I mean, that's super cool. And I, I think for me anyway, like I feel like um, I've only slowly, slowly started to do things slightly outside of what I'm meant to be doing, like recently. Mm -hmm. 
as in I had I became yeah. a consultant and then I thought you know what I don't care what anyone thinks I'm doing what I want when I want you know I don't need to be you know churning out papers and you know doing all the manager stuff that I'm not interested in I'd rather yeah. um, sit with Thrush every Thursday and have a chat about something and you know do my silly TikToks and stuff and um, it's quite a liberating yeah. thing in terms of um, just really doing what you want and not really caring uh, and I think I wish I did that earlier like I really wish I did I mean what you're doing sounds amazing that you could just you know pick up something and go for it well, like that's well, an amazing see, this thing, is the thing. I, I think I just heard like the one thing that I heard from everybody was that they wish they had started earlier mm. and then I was listening to actually a podcast from UCC from Professor Mary Donnelly who's a lawyer and she sits on like the National Research Ethics Committee here and I was just like I want your job you know, mm. like, you know, at some point in my life, I want that job. Mm. And her podcast was just saying, you know, oh, yes, I started way too early for my own good. I can't recommend it. It's an insane amount of work. But if you like the work, it will be the most rewarding life you ever have. And I was mm. like, yeah, like it is definitely I think it definitely brings with it a much greater degree of risk and opprobrium and people constantly, I guess, holding you to a standard or like having an image of you that you sometimes don't really recognize. Hmm. Like, you know, even with something like Twitter, I remember when I was in med school and anybody in the school had like a bone bone to pick with me, they'd be like, oh, well, you know, you and your 7,000 Twitter followers. I'm like, girl, I'm just tweeting into the ether. Hmm. I don't really like know or care how many people there are following me. But to them, it really mattered because it wasn't something that they could do Hmm. or they would have considered doing. So to some degree, yeah, like it, it carries a greater risk of things going wrong, but you just kind of you kind of get used to prioritizing what you want to do. And I think when I got into med school, I wanted to read law and I had placed to read law, but I moved to Ireland to do medicine for various complicated reasons. And, you know, at that time I was like, ah, sure, we we will gun for this. We'll be a consultant by the time we're 30 and then we'll do interesting (laughs) things. And then repeal happened. And then after, you know, doing global campaigning for a year, I was like, we'll take the leisurely route, do a master's, find out what we want to do. Mm. And I was like, we'll apply for the academic program, take the bursary and study something new. And yeah, just that learning was so much more valuable than any sort of, you know, here to their career path that I could have followed or I could follow now. But I feel like um, medicine feels like the Matrix, doesn't it, Thrusha? Which kind of brings us on to the other tweet that you liked so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's what I mean? Like you're you're in the system. You're in the system, yeah. and um, when you're in the system, you you kind of like you you're kind of you get comfortable with being uncomfortable, if that's the right way to say it, right? Mm. And uh, that's where Thrusha, you want to come in with your you know your line, <laughs> the, the line, Thrusha. Yeah, the yeah. line. <laughs> you have to understand. Most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inured, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. I, um, I guess there's that whole. Th- um, I guess that kind of throws back to those kind of people who um, were very happy to have been treated like shit, and so feel like everyone else should kind of expect to be treated that way, right? And the crabs in yeah, the yeah. We just get used to a system, right? And then you're in there, and you don't want to leave. It's, it wasn't that thing about someone oh. saying that um, if you had like caged animals and you open the cage and let them try and let them out, they're going to be too scared to come out of the cage. Even though outside the cage is freedom, they would never do it. They just stay inside because that's all they've ever known. I heard something very recently like this, um, actually in one of my like feedback sessions, which wasn't feedback from my actual rotations. My feedback from rotations, thank God, has been actually decent. Apparently, I'm an actually decent doctor. Um, <laughs> but my feedback from like my intern seminar was, you know, all like daunting. And one of them was just thinking, like, you know, like, you tweet too much. I was like, fuck that. I'm going to keep tweeting. Like, what are you going to do? Try and stop me? Um, he's like, no, no, I would never try and stop you. But, you know, 
look, there is a thing that young people come into medicine with where they think they can hold on to their personality, you know, hmm. while being a doctor. And a core part of professionalism is just realizing that being a doctor will slowly eclipse every part of personality you have as a child. <laughs> and then you get to my <laughs> point in life. And then, you know, my name and like, I suppose the notion of a family I have, <laughs> that's just a notion. What really is there is just like, you know, this core clinical professional. Oh, God. With a strong like sense of their code. And I was like, girl, I know the code. I, I, I know our professional working codes, like the back of my hand. My current research is in refining those codes and making sure they're actually fit for purpose because it is more important to me that they work than that I know them. Mm. But also, I think that absolutely highlighted to me that like, I was never going to be that cookie cutter person. Mm. You know, no harm to people who are absolutely, there were people who, you know, were, feel like genuinely they were born for this life. Like my best friend's a really good example of it because he faced, like he's a do junior doctor as well. He faces you know, all the same nonsense that we all do in clinical practice day in and day out. And he'll turn around and be like, yeah, but Shpangi, have you considered that like, I actually just want to be a doctor and nothing else? I'm like, I have, fair on you, that's mm. fine. Mm. But I remember I had a fascinating consultant for like, I think like a week on rotation and she was amazing because after getting this whole spiel about, you know, how I should stay in my lane and just become molded into the consummate professional <laughs> with no personality, <laughs> she was just like, no Shpangi, being told to not be confident is a load of nonsense. You carry yourself with the self-assuredness of somebody who knows they could leave and make mm. a decent life for themselves mm. any other way as well. Mm. And yeah, yeah frankly, I, I, you know, I hope I never need to use it. I do have very clear goals about what I'd like to do in clinical practice someday and what I'd like to build, but I'd happily do it. Like, I don't care. I'll, I'll happily take a few years out and take consulting money. Yeah, fair enough. I'll, you know, I'll yeah. go be a lecturer for a while. That's something I want to do anyway. No, I mean, uh, there definitely is that whole thing, isn't it, where people, I mean, I certainly felt that way, like you'd invested so much time in that career. And so it kind of makes you feel much less kind of um, safe in kind of considering deviating from a certain path, like even like how I guess the, I, I can see that things are changing, like even things like the Caesar route, like um, not having mm. a training number seems kind of um, slightly safer. I remember kind of when I was as a kind of, Med like medical student and then there's a kind of quite well, the junior doctor kind of thinking that it was absolutely like not an option at all and it was like mm. you know and um so things are changing but um i do think that there there is this whole kind of like sunk cost feeling about stuff and it's um it's nice to hear other people kind of not feeling that same way and but just... you know we feel like we've kind of gone um back back in some ways in terms of some of the consultants I used to work with, especially the surgeons, they had done pretty much every kind of surgery under the sun. And then at some point, at quite late on in the line, they decided, oh, I'm going to be a vascular surgeon, or I'm going to be an orthopod. Mm. But they'd done pretty much everything. Like, I think one I worked with, he'd been all over the world. And um, there was there was one surgery we were doing, and it turned out to be sort of gynecological problem. And he looked at me and goes, you know what, I've done loads of these, but I'm not going to do it because I'm not, I'm not actually a gynecologist. I have to get a gynecologist mm. because of the law and the way it works. So I'm going to have to call someone in. Um, and I used to think to myself, like, it must be amazing to have done so many things, like so much of this. And then as time's gone on, we've kind of ended up trying to siphon ourselves into specific roles very, very quickly. Like if you haven't decided what you want to do by the, uh, by the end of med school, people get stressed out. And the ones who have decided yeah. early, they, they kind of feel like they've got the, the upper edge. They, they're already kind of focusing their career on doing what, everything they need to do to get to where they want to get to. And it's a good thing. Like if now I think it's, no, I, don't, I mean, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing now that people are realizing that 
pigeonholing yourself so early is probably not a good thing. And there are pathways such as the Caesar pathway, which seems daunting when you look at it from the outside, but actually is not at all. Um, it just takes a little bit of organization and a bit of work and a, and a supportive environment. But you could complete your training in whatever way you want and how and do everything that you want to do and choose where you want to work if you do the Caesar pathway rather than doing a CCT pathway, which I wasn't aware of either. Um, and I thought used to was an absolute non-option um, yeah. for, for someone. Yeah, I, I think I think it is. I think what you said definitely strikes through. Like, you know, I've like Christ, if there was anything I was ever going to do in medicine, it was going to be psychiatry. Like it, <laughs> it, it, it did feel like six years of just absolute slogging my way through physical medicine. I think <laughs> there was a time that I had a brief flirtation with neurosurgery because I like working my hands when I was like, no, I actually like painting with my hands. I would rather not be doing 14 hour surgeries with my hands, <laughs> which is yeah. fine. But, you know, I was very lucky that I knew what I what I wanted to do clinically very early because it let me then build my life around it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think there were there are many pathways available, at least in Ireland and the UK, where you can very much tailor your life, but you really need to be aware in advance. Like, for example, you know, I'm doing the academic track here, which, yeah, there's only like 20 of us in the country who do it. Mm. And it did take me, you know, easily about two months where I didn't speak to my family or my friends because I was just writing this massive research proposal. But like, you know, I wanted to do that. But I think it's just sometimes sometimes switching between those pathways or, you know, keeping ahead of those pathways really requires organization, which uh, I have really severe ADHD. So uh, <laughs> for me, it's probably just going to need those like, you know, skip years or years out of training. But I'd rather do that. Like I'd rather approach things that matter to me with actual experience and actual mm. insight into why I want to do it rather than doing, you know, coming out of med school and being like, well, I think I'm supposed to do the basic medical training until mm -hmm. I figure out what I want to do. But there was this book, like I remember when I was in medical school, there's a book, I don't know if you knew, know about, it was called So You Want to Be a Neurosurgeon. And I bought mm -hmm. it because mm -hmm. at the time I still, I had no idea what I really wanted to do. No one had ever sat with me and told me like, this is, these are the pathways that you could do. Yeah. And being me, being me, I was looking for the most chilled out thing with the most money. Um, mm -hmm. And so you're kind of going I mean, through it. At least you really got good. there, right? Yeah, at, at least, least yeah, there. exactly. I was like, yeah. okay, I need to find something where I'm, I'm, I'm kind of chilled. I don't want to be running around too much. Yeah. But um, and then actually recently we had a uh, we had a, a medical student and um, you know I was asking my standard questions and stuff and then I asked him like you know what do you want to do and then he wasn't sure and I was like fine like you know uh, and then I, so I explained to him about surgical pathway and the medical pathway and he, he had no idea about that so I had to get the whiteboard out and draw like okay yeah. these are the pathways you know how you know in Back yeah. to the Future too where you're trying to he tries to draw the timelines and how they can change. <laughs> So I literally draw, this is the, oh, the timeline, that's constant, that's your life, okay? And then it's like... <laughs> Did you draw like a dot at the end? Just yeah. Like as a at memento mori? Yeah. I was like, great Scott, do you yeah. know what we've done? <laughs> you too could retire earlier than death. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a picture of him slowly disappearing if he's in surgery. Like, oh, yeah, okay. exactly. Oh, right. I, was, yeah. I was speaking to uh, one of my partners and they're a barrister and I was chatting about having like an insane 2022 it's just been mental between COVID and just work and I guess everything you know switching between online and hybrid and in person but mm. I think there was I'm just trying to find this here oh yeah I was talking about having a hard day today and they're like oh yeah you know look that's human we're human mostly and I was like no 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 we're regulated professionals oh, <laughs> there yeah. is a difference <laughs> we don't get to be human and I was like oh, yeah. Course, yeah sometimes you forget among all of that that you you have to find something that you will still be willing to do 
or you know, you ostensibly will still be curious about, hmm. you know, month on month, year on year, because I'm speaking to one of my other partners, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, I don't need work that nurtures me. I just need work that pays me." I was like, "Well, that's why I'm doing intern here, but uh, <laughs> you know, 19-hour shifts hit real different when you actually want to do them. Yeah, when, yeah. Like that's something that you like where you forget time exists." Just a really different vibe. I mean, I, I think 19-hour shifts should be outlawed, but uh, yeah, if you but had to do them. I, I don't understand. Like, I've got a good friend, and years ago, when I was finding it really tough doing my training, um, I think he was saying something about like how he loves his job so much that like he never feels tired to go in. He never feels mm. like he doesn't want to be there. And I thought, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, there are so <laughs> oh, many days. Man. Like, what are you Ooh, talking about? How's this possible? <laughs> How's this possible? How could someone? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you know. Some days I work from home, and I'm still late. No, I'm still late. <laughs> the, the bedroom still, was there. Like, I was still late. Discussion food. <laughs> I was in bed taking the fur. I was like, fine, fine. I'm getting there. Just give me a minute, please. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine just be. Oh my Allegedly. god! I've never even considered. Yeah. <laughs> you could do radiology remote. Sorry, that's blown my mind. I, I'm, I'm changing careers. It's fine. Disregard everything I've ever said. <laughs> you did not know this. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'd, I'd be surprised if we can do radiology sometimes in our hospitals. <laughs> like, um, quite frankly, yeah. It may be possible that one could be on holiday and still doing radiology from a laptop. I'm just saying <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. It may be possible that one might take their holiday. to. Oh, I just wow. think you should just have a holiday when you have a holiday. Because I, I, like we're so bad at switching off. But it'd be nice to mingle the both, don't you think? Like, you know, when you come back from holiday, you think to yourself, like, oh, if I could have like a, a kind of a halfway house between holiday and life, that'd be great. I mean, I well, could I'm do... doing an academic job right now, so it's pretty much the same <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, like you're not working, mate. <laughs> you're doing TED talks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've, I've never done a single thing in my life ever. <laughs> I have never done one thing in my whole life. I feel like your version of not doing one thing is like a lifetime, my lifetime of doing like a load of things and maybe another oh, no, like, lifetime on top of that. <laughs> like that's just something I've stolen from Carl because like anytime I say anything to him, he'll be like, yeah, no, no, like I'm an idiot. I've never done anything in my life and it infuriates me. But I also like being infuriating. <laughs> like this is, this is my only goal in life, you know, work, whatever. My only goal in life, as I would often espoused on Twitter, is to be insufferable and insatiable. I will keep going <laughs> for things that I want. And if I have to be insufferable about it, that's fine. At the end of the day, I'm still living the life I want to live. So mm. until then, I've not done a single thing in my life. That's I think, goal. yeah, that, that's, a good, that's a good thing to be. So being a bit more confident about what you want from things. I think a lot of the time we don't ask ourselves, what is it that I want? Where, where, does I, where do I, I want to be? How's this going to work out for me? And you end up just kind of going yeah. down the system, you know, just following the system until, um, yeah, it's just yeah. maybe you've spent years doing whatever like I, it is. I, I suppose particularly for juniors here, I guess it's a problem. Like it's very different in the UK, obviously, because people do like F3, F4s, which I just fundamentally cannot comprehend being like an intern level doctor for more than a year, I think would kill me. <laughs> but uh, I, I, think, I think it's particularly difficult here because you're a junior doctor for a very short period of time, which means you professionalize at pace. You know, like the things that I couldn't imagine doing even like six weeks ago, I think I'd, I'd feel very, very confident about because our working pressures are so significant. Mm. But it does mean, you know, I, I think there's a point when I was rotating through, yeah, it was like November, December time when I did that ridiculous stretch of coal. Mm. And, I, you know, I came out having taken every person's Christmas call because why not? 
And my infectious diseases team were like, go home. Like, literally, I do not want to see hide nor hair of you this Friday. Take this day. And by the way, if there are any, you know, senior doctors listening, as I'm sure there are, please give your trainees time to actually rest. If they have mm. done call, like, try give them their due time to rest. Mm, That's actually, yeah. it's, it's been life changing. But, mm. you know, I was saying to them, because I think they didn't have cover or something for a while. I said, you know, like, I'll come back and help you guys out while I'm on my academic job. Mm. And they're like, you know, your academic job is for you to focus on the things that you want to do. Like, you literally, you work really, really hard to secure this time. Actually mm. use that time to do stuff in psychiatry or do stuff in public speaking or writing. Mm. You know, we're understaffed, but we'll manage. Don't spend mm. that time that you fought for not doing something that is for what you want. And I was just like, this is revelatory. Mm. Yeah, it is. I mean, because you have to realize that... Um... You know when you feel like you've got to be there, otherwise the place is not going to work. Well, when mm. you're not there, it's going to work. It yeah, is. Yeah. It, it is. keeps working. You're not. You don't overvalue yourself in the bigger picture of the department and the NHS and all the rest of it. The mm. place will keep going. And, yeah. And they make yeah. contingencies for you to to carry on. Yeah, it, it was really helpful for me to have that job because then I got COVID and then between that and bereavement, I was off for basically a month. Mm. And, you know, no matter how much I got hassled by certain colleagues or whatever to like come back in even though you know like how dare you make us work on the shadow road i was like nah girl i'm sick like mm. i am certified to be unwell and having a real bad time so uh no i i personally do not need to be here work will go on without me exactly. if there is documentation exactly. that needs to be done i'm sure i can answer emails but like the hospital will not fall down if i am not looking after like 60 patients alone yeah exactly i mean that's because the thing frankly if we're at that point bigger issues yeah yeah totally but that's the thing those places will take and take and take you can give you can give like the, you could that is verbatim what they said to me when they were like go home if you keep mm. giving they will keep taking yeah mm. yeah um, they would expect that yeah they would expect mm. that kind of stuff yeah. i had like a colleague who a consultant who um kind of would live on site and he'd just like frequently just turn up back on the ward and just like do stuff like even when he's not on call he'd just like turn up and be doing stuff yeah. and so mm. it got to a point where say if like there was a sick patient and uh, they couldn't get through to one of the actual on-call consultants they'd call him because they'd mm. know he'd be on site and that he'd probably come yeah and... but like you know again i think i think it's a matter of practice as i was saying earlier like practicing within your rights not just your responsibilities like i grew up with when my mum was basically you know SHO registrar and then like working towards professorship mm. so like she was never hoped like, mm. I love those women to bits, but it's like, she was never home. I was brought up by my aunt, uh, pretty much. And, you know, she was very much one of those people, particularly in India, you know, you have like a teaching hospital campus. Mm. So, you know, literally like campus was three minutes away. Like the apartment mm. was three minutes away from the hospital. And she was always the person who was there to do that extra work. Mm. And to this day, there's like, you know, she's still upset about the fact that you know, no matter how much work she put in, she never got first authorship or whatever over that work. Mm. And I think I learned very, very young, like very young, that it is like it really is not about the amount of work you put in. Mm. Or in, insofar as that is not necessarily what will ever be valued. Mm. It, well, like, I think yeah. the balance is somewhere between working efficiently and working effectively. Mm. But the sheer volume you do just gets lost because you know, that volume isn't necessary, unless it's quantifiable in outcomes mm. that is directly attributable to you and only you, mm. it ain't worth it, bro. 
yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. I mean, that's the thing. You keep giving work uh, more and more of your life and more of more of your time, and it can be a little bit annoying when they can't even give you a plate through, sure. I know. Oh my uh, gosh, you... <laughs> Dr. Noodles. She was practicing what she preaches by having a salad. But, and all she wanted to do was put it onto a plate, but then she was informed that there was only one ward plate, and that's not for doctors. Wow. One ward plate. I mean, things have got bad. I know. I mean, that bar. That bar yeah, I mean, what's nearly going to do with her 24-hour meals if we only got one plate? One plate. I mean, you might as well say, you know, get more more car parking space, but no no more places for the patients to be. This doesn't make any sense. What are we going to do? <laughs> so, honestly, that's impressive. Like, we only have a five-day canteen, but if we had one plate, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think she would go south real fast. Like, it's just... I wonder, and I do wonder about what this is like in the NHS, because, you know, like my interaction with the NHS before moving here was like volunteering in hospitals in like Manchester mm. for years before I came to college. Mm. And, you know, I, I wonder what it is like there in terms of resource scarcity, because obviously here we have the issue of staffing scarcity mm. and then resource scarcity in terms of whether you want to look at remuneration or training opportunities. But in a very physical and practical sense, a hospital has, you know, the basic amenities. It has on-call rooms. It has plates. Let's just say <laughs> plates. We have more than one plate. That is one thing I will say about my hospital. Anybody who wants to come work here, we've got plates. We will have a plate for you to eat no food from the canteen off of. Oh, fair like, enough. That'll do. But, you wow. know, is that something that is, you think, an, a ubiquitous issue? Because the, I think the worst that I have seen, like, you know, physical item, scarcity get or in the hospital was when there was just this yellow like hazard bin that just said it was like one of those healthcare waste bins but the broken sign was just under healthcare so it just said healthcare broken oh, oh. <laughs> so I think I put it up on Twitter somewhere but I was like I, mean, like, I, I think that just yeah, epitomizes where we are. We have the resources, but healthcare broken now. Isn't it like yeah. a unifying problem everywhere where every single doctor's mess only has knives and maybe like one spoon, no forks? Like, that's like, isn't that like a, oh, a thing? Paper cups, man. Cups, paper cups. I would just I mean, like some water. One of the places I was working in, I went to try and close the door and it turned out it was jammed open with a fork. <laughs> was like, what is this? Like, why is there a fork? And this is a big place. This is like a very fancy place. And I was thinking like, I mean, this is one of the most renowned places in the country. Why are we using As a fork? As in, they didn't the have door? a doorstop? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What? Yeah. <laughs> they had this little sort of button thing that you push down and then it would keep the door open. But that clearly wasn't working. Someone just jammed a fork on there and it's like, well, now there's no fork. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. You can have a door jab um, ground fork to go with your single word plane that everybody yeah. can lick. Yeah, exactly. Oh exactly. my God. This is, this is how we know COVID has ended. Everybody can lick the same word plate. Oh, God. <laughs> Finally, what oh, we all wanted what all I, this time. Yeah, that's all we've been waiting for. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, oh, good old days. Yeah, I do, I do feel like sometimes these places just, should just can't get cancelled. And um, there was another tweet from Bernadine Evaristo, mm. uh, quite a long tweet. And um, she says, the media's obsession with so-called cancel culture is dangerous. Marginalised communities have always been de facto cancelled, but this isn't how the media applies the term. And the people who are supposed to have been cancelled have instead been challenged um yeah I, I, recently in almost every interview i give i'm all i'm asked about cancel culture <sighs> usually thrown innocuously in at the end but my reply is to change the term itself they're looking for sound bites for the clickbait headlines that serve on anti-progression agenda i mean the whole idea is about i guess about the weaponization of cancellation 
I mean, that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? You know, um, the use of the word cancellation. What does cancellation really mean? You know, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Are people ever really cancelled? I mean, the people who seem to kind of complain most loudly about it are the ones that are kind of in uh, national newspapers. I remember Pierce Morgan, like, talking about it when he left, like, GMTV or something. Was it GMTV or some mm. kind of, I don't know, TV thing? And then he was in a national newspaper complaining about it. And it's all a bit ridiculous. But it's kind of like the new... That's the new kind of political correctness gone mad. They realise how ridiculous they sound saying political correctness gone mad. So now they talk about being cancelled. But... Mm. Um, I, so firstly, like as a term, I think it is a non-entity. I mean, you know, if I, like I would never use that in the course of my work as a journalist, mm. because I think it is not only unhelpful, it this it purports to describe an action that doesn't happen by and mm. large. Mm. It, it's it purports to describe something that is even if it did happen is not really effective. But then mm. today I saw something that I was like, oh, you know, this might actually be an example of like where somebody has actually suffered a consequence. Mm -hmm. But you know, the second that somebody actually suffers a consequence, nobody ever talks about cancel culture anymore. So this is about um, Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, who was a psych department chair at Columbia, mm. who put out a tweet, I think it's like yesterday or day before, that was quite a racialized term referring to a black yes. model as oh, yeah. a freak of nature. Mm. And you know, like that was one place where I thought this person you know, said something really Awful. ass backwards hmm. and hmm. experienced one consequence. What was the consequence? The, the, oh, I don't know the consequence. They got removed as a figurehead, but they're still being paid. So, like, what does it really mean? Well, see, this is the thing. Well, see, this is also kind of my problem. It's like, if you replace the term cancel culture, like, I've been asked this on interviews, you know, whenever I do interviews around DEI work hmm. in any setting, somebody, you know, asked me about the rise of cancel culture. I'm like, Actually, are you talking about the rise of experiencing a consequence? Yeah, like, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I think I think we need more of that. Mm. You know, I saw that and I was actually encouraged because if anything, we need to be pushing for the consequences of your actions being pushed to their logical conclusion. Mm. Because I find that, at least in my experience as a doctor at the intersection of multiple marginalizations, we don't like, you know, we don't even get cancelled in public. For us, it's always just being pulled into like unwarranted disciplinary meetings or being given warnings and everything being done in a very hush hush way that mm. allows privileged doctors and privileged seniors to very much, you know, get away looking very um, kindly and benevolent yeah, while mm. you are very silently very much being erased from the picture of your own work, from credit mm. for your own work, and actually mm. being erased from getting the, the voice to defend yourself for something yeah. that you may or may not even have done. Mm -hmm. So on the on the flip side, if somebody wants to argue that cancel culture is on the rise, and that means that people are very visibly facing a consequence for their mm. actions, particularly privileged people, I'm like, bring it on. Like, yeah. I think we should have yeah. more of that. I think mm -hmm. if I'm going to be held to a frankly unattainable standard, not just in practice, but also in how I communicate, like, I am held to an unattainable standard where if I speak with my normal voice and my normal vocabulary, I am told that I am dressing it up too much or I'm being too aggressive or I'm using legalese. I'm like, mm. this is just how I would speak to anybody. And, mm. you know, you just simply don't expect it because of my skin color or whatever. I mean, that's the thing, like, we uh, we joke about it, don't we, Thrush, about, oh, you know, this is the week we're going to get cancelled and um, and things like that. And... Uh, I think I think it's I think you're completely right. It's about it's not about being cancelled. It's about consequences. And um, you know, as scary as it can be to put ourselves out on this podcast and any any other form, 
of, of media like you know yourself on Twitter with your followers and things like I think there is a difference between sort of making a mistake and um, you know like the problem is when people double down you know and they don't admit that they they're not listening to anyone they don't want to say they've done anything wrong and they just keep arguing at it and that's that's when I think okay you know what you probably should think about cancelling or closing your account or something because yeah. this is not going to work out well but um, I think the idea really should be that um, I mean hopefully. If you go into Twitter and social media and stuff with the attitude of like I'm going to learn something from this, yeah. and I'm going to I'm I'm happy to learn and take on a conversation and you know fine if I'm wrong I'm wrong and I'll take that on, then that's that's not so bad and maybe doesn't deserve the, you know the in quote quotation mark cancellation, yeah. as it were, isn't it? Um, it can be I think a fine line. Yeah. I mean that guy the guy we were talking about though his his kind of um, apology was still a bit toe-curlingly weird because he did say something along oh, the lines yeah. of I'm going I'm living and learning and it's like mate that's that's not the appropriate that's not actually the appropriate like, girl, response we all that. Did that, but yeah. yeah like that's just that I don't know it was just so yeah. kind of it's cringe that well you know I've been an internet denizen many many years I've been on like you know tumblr discord fanfiction.net I've really done it all Twitter mm. is just this very interesting place where we put people on pedestals very very fast mm. and I think the faster you get put on a pedestal, you know, like I think we were talking about this earlier uh, before we started recording about, you know, as you get older, it becomes harder to put your hand up and say, yes, I can do it or yes, I can try. Mm. I think the quicker you amass that following or the more prominent that following is, for people, it becomes harder to say, I'm sorry. Like literally the words, I'm sorry. Mm. Like, geez, in the last week alone, you know, I've just had to say, I'm unequivocally sorry for this. Mm. I didn't know. And I, w I won't do it again. Hmm. And I think it becomes so hard when we give people to become these sort of, you know, rising meteors of like, yeah. you know, main characters of things, whether in a good or a bad way. Hmm. It becomes harder for them to say sorry hmm. and becomes possibly harder for us to accept it. Is that because of a brand that they kind of because Yeah. The, I, I think so. Like it? how closely they tie what they say with who they who they are. But mm. then if but then surely if you just kind of accept that you're just a fallible person, then, you know, you could just, and then can that not be your brand? Like, yeah, it just, I don't know. Like, I, 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 I always say uh, whenever people are like, oh, yeah, you know, why wouldn't you just get some PR and rep? I'm like, absolutely. If there are any like people who were out doing talent scouting, like, please, I have ADHD. I need somebody to manage all my all the things I do. You know, they're like, you know, why wouldn't you like get an agent? I'm like, I'm the least marketable person in the world. All I wear is suits from the 1950s. I do not wear a watch. I am loath to go near technology unless it's a gaming laptop. And I am really, really bad at staying on message. Like, I have, the, the only message I have is who I am as a person. And it's did you did with, you not tweet at me a modeling photo? Because when I was modeling my uh, ruined shoes <laughs> while I was walking the, the the hills, I feel like you did you not tweet at me like a, a photo of oh, you? Like I, like... I, I have friends I work with who are photographers who will take photos of me. Like, Imran, I'm not saying I'm not hot. Like, come on. I was like, <laughs> that's kind of hard, man, to, that's that's kinda hard a, to defend. That's cool, like, man. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like, I, I, am, I find it really difficult to make myself a brand. Like, you know, I worked as, as a creative enterprise i have been mm. a brand like my brand has been in the new york times but i found mm. that a very difficult thing to sustain mm. but you know because you have to have an image you have to have a few lines mm. and i i think it's i think it's really damaging because i think people feel like they have to do that 
Mm. to grow an audience fast or whatever. Yeah. Whereas I've gotten to the point, at least in the last, well, at least since I was doxxed anyway, last, what, two years, where if I ever get more than like 20 or 30 followers, I'm like, holy shit, what's happening on the internet? I don't know about. Like, uh, what is going on? What have around? I done now? I don't. Yeah. Well, no, I'm just like, you know, genuinely, I, sometimes I'm just like, I don't want to know. Like, please come by and stay for the show, but don't expect me to tie any of my self-worth to this. Yeah, fair mm. enough. Yeah, um, and I think that's actually a reasonably healthy attitude to have, possibly. Um, kind of speaking about kind of uh, worth, um, it's a bit of a tenuous link, but uh, the, one of one of the <laughs> kind of one of yeah, segways. Uh, one of the things that kind of did the rounds this week was a course um, where you could experience being a medical student for a whole week. Wow. You know, practice opening those curtains was a joke that was quite commonly used for the princely sum. The princely sum of £2,000. Um, and I was pleased to see, to see that there are people who are kind of undercutting them. So Adam Lawton would do it for 1950 Jamie Sherrington, <laughs> he'd do it for a Twix. So there you go. Wow. £2,000 or a Twix. I'm sorry, I, I will only do it for a 6942 uh of whatever currency <laughs> I, I, it could be like it could be like 69 pounds and 42 pence i don't mind. yeah monopoly money do you take monopoly money <laughs> yeah i'll, I'll take yeah. monopoly money i don't care yeah yeah fair you enough you could literally give me 6942 individual beans <laughs> and I, would, I would so appreciate the effort you magic beans being. yeah 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 but magic beans grow a yeah, stalk we should say um because to give some publicity to people who um, aren't charging £2,000 to be a medical student. So there's uh, at into medical school, no, at into med school. And so mm-hmm. um, if you just give them a follow, they help medical students and doctors. Uh, so they support the next generation of aspiring medics from underprivileged backgrounds in the UK. And I think that was where most people were kind of upset that they felt that this is just like another potential advantage for um, it just where you throw your money at a problem, I guess. And uh, well, yeah, seems to I just think it's so sad. Like I really do because I I've been very very fortunate with, you know, my experiences. Like I suppose the reason that I've been so involved and so interested in research is, you know, doing when people were away basically doing, you know, clinical fellowships or in in med school, you know, when they were going away to like volunteerism places like Zambia or wherever. I was really really lucky. I was very lucky to apply to places to do research fellowships and they either funded it or waived the fees, mm. all of which really really helps. But I think I I find it so sad that people think that the only way they have to gain entry or experience is money and therefore that money starts sort of conflating itself with quality because that money all, all it does is guarantee you entry. It doesn't assure you of the quality of your experience. Mm-hmm. But it starts being conflated with, you know, the more expensive something is, the more valuable that experience is. Whereas, you know, all through med- medical school, I've been teaching people for their supplementals. Like even now, I mentor young medical students and, you know, young doctors here and in the UK and in Malaysia, and, you know, everywhere. Because I, I think we are, I don't know, I like to think of medicine and medics in general as a very giving population mm. in terms of, you know, passing on our knowledge and our acumen to the next generation the goods and the bads of it. I, I'm very lucky, I think, in psychiatry, particularly the Royal College and the Choose Psychiatry Initiative is really, really good for that. I've been so fortunate. In that context, I find it so sad that people really do feel like they have to pay to gain that entrance where, you know, I am an open book to anybody who writes to me. And I've just been very lucky. 
I have just simply written to other doctors. You know, like, I remember when I applied for a fellowship in London somewhere, and I just wrote to this doctor. I was like, hi, you do something that I really like doing in research. And then my mum texted me back. She's like, you did not just email, like, the past president of the Royal College of Pediatrics. And I was like, I don't know. I assumed they were a doctor <laughs> who were willing to give up their time because I, that's what I know doctors to be like. Yeah. Mm. In that context, I just find it so sad that it's maybe not advertised enough or there is such a perception of hierarchy that we aren't all able to uplift. Well, some of it is luck though, right? So like Felicia Absolutely. Oh, 100%. She yeah. was saying that, so she, remem she remembers asking about work experience at a widening participation event and the student leading advised mm -hmm. the only way to... Only way was to hit up the online consultant list, of which I sent 178 emails, and I got seven replies. Four of them were no and three yes. Um, so yeah, it's just um, like it, it, it's it's invariably luck. But um, I mean, the thing is, like, um, I think what I've noticed anyway, as someone who runs courses, and don't worry, they're not extortionate like 2K. I mean, anyway, but um, the point is. Um, what I've noticed is that people will always put a value on something that's paid for. So most of what I teach and most of what a lot of people teach can actually be found online if you want to look around mm. it's on YouTube. There's so many resources out there. But um, there will always still be a value when a place on something that people are willing to put money on. Right. And also, um, you know, having come from the background that I have, I, I, and I, th I do still recommend people read this book called The Unfair Advantage. Um, it does talk a lot about the unfair advantages that we all have. And I do, I would encourage people to always think about themselves and the unfair advantages that they have to get to the position they have if it's a place they, they, they think is going to be. Now, what I also now know is that um, there is a, there's, there's, there's no reason that you can't get to where you want to get to, but there are ways to get there faster. And the way to get there faster is either to do what you've done, Shivangi, is, uh, is to find someone that's willing to help you. Right. You find someone that's going to be a mentor that's going to be able to give you that sort of nod and tell you, you know, this is where you need to go. But for some people, they don't have that. Or so for some people, it's easier just to pay for it. And if you've got money, then there's no reason for you not to be able to do that. Mm. And so when I saw this course at two thousand um, pounds, it didn't strike me as a course that your average student would go to. Like how many people? I mean, when I was 18, like I my dad might have had 2K. I did not have two. I did not have 2K to throw around. So this clearly isn't aimed at people. Um, that are are of that sort of generation. I mean, actually, when you look into it, I think they're closely associated with a particular school that are of kind of very affluent. Eaten. This mm. is not. Yeah, this is not. This is not a course for for your average Joe. This is this is not. For, this is for someone that's got money. And I know from running courses that usually what you do is that you'll have high ticket items, and you don't really expect anyone to go to it. And if you do, great, happy days. And you've got cheap items. Perfect. You know, that's how you run. Well, I mean, you do it. it kind of, there, there was outrage because it was uh, linked to the Royal Society of Medicine. So. Yeah, exactly. But if you're going to start trying to get associated with a big college and that's going to imply that this is, this is the thing that's going to get you in, that's when it starts to get dodgy, doesn't it? That starts to get dodgy. You might as well say that, pay money and you get in. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what they've done though, isn't it? So that's why people I are I mean, in, in fairness, uh, casting no aspersions about the uh, UK medical school recruitment system. Surely not. And like how that manifests itself from the start of um, getting predicted grades and mm. how that might be augmented by for people. Mm. Oh, yeah, that was in the papers, exactly. wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like that, oh, like, Jesus, I've seen that happen like when I was in school. So. I mean, like, so Rohan did like a nice little tweet on that, which was along the lines of actually, let's mm. not paint this as just something that posh rich kids would do. I know full well many mm. not rich parents who would do whatever it took to stump up the cash if they thought it'd help their child get into medical school which makes it even more anger inducing yeah i mean look in truth if my daughter came up to me one day and said look dad i want to go to med school 
um, and this thing's going to cost 2K, I'll, you know, like I'll do what I can to make it happen. I mean, that's what, but that's what, this is exactly what it plays on. It's the same as all those final courses that will say they're going to get you through finals. Yeah. People will always throw money at their problem and there'll always be someone who's willing to take it. Yeah. The only thing, the only time when it gets dodgy mm. is when you start to say something like, if you don't do this, there's no chance, you've, you've got no chance in hell. Mm. And yeah, but it, I suppose unless you say that, it's so diff. Like unless you say that, how do you market something that is so clearly mm. exactly? Ex like, they're not gonna be like fortunate, exploitative. Yeah, they're not gonna be like, oh, you yeah. know, you could do, could help, maybe. It was like I, I, I'm not saying this, you know, like full on little like villain, like <laughs> mushing their hands together. <laughs> I, I, w I would save that two thousand euros or pounds or whatever very judiciously for um that exam you're invariably gonna have to repeat. Mm. Like, or like that exam you might have to repeat like eight billion times. Yeah, well. Like, I, I don't know, I, I suppose I, I did, like, for all my sense of doing medicine, I did benefit very much from um, the fees that we pay in Ireland. Mm -hmm. You know, like in the UK, I think it would have been absolutely unsustainable, like even from when I entered college to when I finished. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't know, what is it, like 14,000 a year in the UK now to read medicine or something? Oh, like really? That? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. It's like something like 10 or 12. But like here, it's like three grand uh, after a government subsidy. And, you know, we're constantly campaigning for it to be free. I doubt it will be. But like, I think they probably might bring it down a bit. Because it wasn't, it was free not too long ago. Like really not too long ago. When we complain about medicine being elitist, right? It happens from far, far, far before like a little course, little course that costs 2K. It happened way before that. It happened when someone goes to private school, when someone gets tuition, when someone, you know, when someone's got a parent that's well off, who knows someone else, that knows someone else, who get them that work experience. That's when the advantages happen. It's not when you've got a 2K course right at the end, which might help you get into med school or not. The advantage happened way, way, way before that. And even when you're getting into med school, you've still got to have the advantage of being able to afford that thing. Also, like also the amount of unpaid work we do, like obviously, you know, there's always a challenge around the underpayment of student nurses mm. as part of their clinical training. But the unpaid work, like frankly, for me, like, you know, my, like we like we're a first generation of migrants to the UK. We've had a fairly hard, like a fairly hard time with money traveling. Mm. But certainly like th the advantages can be softer and more nuanced as well. Like my biggest advantage was certainly that I was correcting my mum's like PhD students theses for English hmm. when I was like five. Wow. Like 100% that's shaped me into being an editor now and a hmm. writer. You know, that that is objectively something that other people can't do. Exactly. All money being equal, that is an experience that you cannot buy. Hmm. Similarly, you know, in med school, all you're doing isn't just your medical degree. You are always, you know, being asked to do unpaid rotations, like rotations in your clinical interest, rotation in your research interest, even if you have your fees waived for it. The, you know, some people have to keep working through med school. Like I had to keep working through multiple years of my med school just to make sure that I could survive on like two odd years a day. Like I was literally mm. doing, you know, like waitressing at some like rich man's like 60th birthday party mm. who owned like an entire four story house, like right in the city center behind the government buildings. Mm. And then like cycling from there, getting an hour's nap and then cycling to work because I couldn't afford the bus into the hospital. That's what I mean. The unfair advantages are stacked up from way, way in advance. And we spoke about this last week when we said the, you know, overall talent and IQ is actually probably evenly distributed throughout the country, but the opportunities are not. 
That's the issue. It's, and as long as there's an unfair advantage that someone can pay for, someone's always going to take it. In the same way that I get a personal trainer to help me to get bigger and tell me what to eat. It's the same thing. It's a I'm, shortcut I'm to get what I want. I'm a coward and I find personal trainers really annoying. And if yeah. they're just like, I'm one of those people who only has a fight response. Like I don't have a fight <laughs> response. So if a personal trainer screamed at me, I would just scream at them back. Which is poor professional conduct. Genuinely. So I can't do that. But like, yeah. definitely, I think the one thing that we can do, like, you know, as individuals, I suppose, in medicine, and the one thing that I make a habit of doing, whenever I find myself in a scenario where I have an unfair advantage, I, uh, there are two things. Like, absolutely, I know that if I don't take this opportunity, somebody else will. Like, you know, I've been asked to, like, come do, like, consulting internships and mm. whatever, and, like, in a very corporate setting. And I look at them and I'm like, okay, so you're asking me to do this from like a DEI perspective. And there's, you know, all the, you know, the usual DEI criteria mentioned because it's an American thing. Apart from being Asian, like being Asian as like, mm. a, a, of all the minority ethnicities, being Asian is not a criteria. So mm. even if I could take that opportunity, I couldn't recommend it to somebody I was mentoring. Mm. In that case, I'm like, there's no point. Because like, that's an unfair advantage that like they want me for some kind of publicity, but that will not stack up and it won't like pass down the line hmm. but on the other hand when i do get an unfair advantage i very much see to it that i have like somebody who else who is or you know not even just one person but like i'm able to pass on how to gun for those opportunities to somebody else like hmm. i i will make a point of this all the time like there is a um there's like an open working initiative in ireland like there's people who i do like a few sort of just like talks for free for every now and then and mm. they basically work with people who have mental health issues and how to both get into the workplace in different settings but also how to sustain yourself mm. in a workplace and how to self-advocate how to make sure you're getting the appropriate accommodations and i'm like do you know what if people think you're a bit of like a little bit of a dick it's not the end of the world mm. but if, if you are not well because you've kept on you know basically being a door being a doormat because you're scared for whatever reason that will actually harm you in the mm. long run. Mm. So yeah, like if I do get an unequal opportunity, I will absolutely make sure that that is fit to be passed on mm. to people who don't get those chances by the time I leave that role. Yeah, I mean that's that's I mean that's that's probably the right attitude to take. It's sad, but it's with everything, isn't it? Like law, all of those things, trading, getting into these I mean, things, like, it's not easy. Yeah, like law here is actually particularly terrifying because like like in the UK, you know, you might be paid by a chambers if you're mm. doing barristering. Here you do, you are a barrister. Then by definition, you do your deviling for a year unpaid. <laughs> what? Apart from like three scholarships. Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, I would have to basically work as a doctor somehow while working in, while deviling. Unless, mm. you know, I take all of my sweet registrar money. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, here it's weird with jobs in psychiatry. You technically like some places have SHO like roles and pay scales and or some places don't. And you go like straight to a reg pay scale. Mm. So like, got to save up that sweet reg yeah. money to afford barristering, <laughs> man. I'm the mm. worst. Like I, like people use their money for like traveling or like nice trinkets i'm just like i literally like i see money i put it into learning new things no that's awesome mm, that's you keep good. doing that that's va more valuable than it's fine, shoes but like, <laughs> well, it probably is but i think it also like helps me you know look forward to i guess that you know that private public divide thing that you were talking about like i don't mm. know i don't know if i could i don't know maybe i'll find out when i get there i don't know if i could do private medical work <laughs> but like frankly i have absolutely no com compulsions about like you know going working private in consulting yeah. in the in the corporate sphere so long as it is away from my clinical work and my clinical work is not influenced by 
you know, like big pharma stuff or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, just keep, keep that side of my life very separate. You know, when you see me just like going around the world, like, I don't know, like doing really inspirational <laughs> talks about things that do not matter. Oh, I, I can do that so long as that doesn't actually affect my clinical practice, I think. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, obviously that that's always going to be the... Um, Hopefully that's the guiding North Star for anyone uh, in healthcare, mm. especially that um, yeah. whatever whatever is on the table, you know, good clinical care should be the, the top priority, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Regardless of everything else. Okay. Uh, was there anything else you want to talk about? Go. Oh my God, we didn't even talk about SmartMed. This is definitely a thing that I wanted to talk about in medicine because you know that there is a broader conversation to be had about professionalism in person, professionalism online, yada yada. Mm. But at the end of the day, like we are all people and as somebody who has been doxxed before in a pretty horrific like violation of my like personal privacy and, you know, the biggest threat has always been, oh, my God, you know, God, like, God forbid we we show people that you are a person who has, you know, thoughts and God forbid post watershed thoughts. Mm. Like, I really like that SmutMed has arisen as a tag on Twitter mm. and I really like that it is. Like, frankly, I do really like that it is led by, you know, people who are women and from minority genders, mm. people who are people of color, etc. That it is very much led by them. The conversation is kind of developed as seeing themselves as people, themselves as themselves as people first, mm. outside of the professional's eyes, while sort of reconciling that gap we're meant to have. Where, mm. you know, yeah, obviously when we're in hospital, when we're in work, when we're in, in with a patient, those conversations would neither be timely nor appropriate nor frankly should they come up otherwise uh there's something seriously gone wrong <laughs> you know like those conversations aren't aren't are definitely not appropriate in that forum but i think it gives us agency back to be doctors as part of who we are and not all of what we are yeah. you know this came up earlier as i was saying like the, the identity of the doctor subsuming the person you are mm. and i think it i think i really like the notion of smut med because it, it's just arisen as this sweet antidote to all of this, you know, constant judgment from early mm. retired um, <laughs> ex-doctors who will find just about any reason to nitpick at somebody from like the quality of their shoes to whatever, whatever have you. Mm. I think it's just such a sweet antidote to that. That is a collective way for us to find humor, a collective way for us to find personality and a mm. collective way for us to name that. As part of Med Twitter, a nice salve to, you know, when Med Twitter just develops its new main character mm. and we're just like off in the corner making, you know, six year old, haha, that's funny, look, weenus jokes. <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's great. And I think, I, I do think it deserves to be highlighted because like Tanya and Isabel, I think they're doing a fantastic job of actually keeping us entertained in a way that is surprisingly non-confrontational, mm. Mm. surprisingly inclusive. Um, you know, actually really undercuts is is almost the opposite of when you do see like really bad uh, what I what I would consider really bad breaches of um conduct where senior doctors approach junior doctors or medical students in inappropriate ways or in inappropriate fora. Like this is a space where we're almost reclaiming that part of our identity for ourselves mm. and making it safer for all of us to be able to do that, making it safer for us to be able to thirst post and be like, look, that's me. That's just me <laughs> over here. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry. This is also the obligatory. Like, this is just me over here saying I love all my partners and they're very, very cute and great. <laughs> so I want to be able to do that. I want to yeah, be able to do that. You know, yeah. professionalism isn't just you asking your patients about their wife and kids and their, your patient asking you about your husband and kids. Mm. You should be able to talk about who your partners are. You know, it doesn't have to be like bringing in roses to work, but 
should be able to be accepted for who you are. And I think SmutMed is a, a really nice antidote to... So there's a hashtag. There's a hashtag for this. So you, yes, yes you, it yeah. is hashtag. Smart don't pretend you okay, haven't clicked smart. on that. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't even know what that means. But I'll just. So I'll innocent. Oh, come, so on. Innocent. come on, come so on. Incognito mode. <laughs> 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 you know the tricks. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There you go. All right, All right then. <laughs> okay, yeah, cool. Like I, I just, I just wanted to highlight that. Like maybe because I do want to actually thank that community of people. I think they've made it. I, I think they've made Twitter from a medicine perspective or a medic perspective, much more tenable to be yeah, in. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it can get a little bit crazy out there sometimes, mm. um, doesn't it, can it? And uh, it's nice to know that you may have a bit of, uh, somewhere that you can have a bit of fun or like-minded people that are happy to have a bit of a bit of a joke. Exactly, and, and like ev- where everyone is, you know, acknowledging that that is the level at which you want to interact on. Mm. Yeah. Like, for example, um, Julia posted this thing in February. It's like, somebody added a letter to the pen jar on the ward, and I fully backed this humor, and they've obviously added an I to the pens jar. I was like, this is silly, but, you know, it's fine to <laughs> it's be funny. silly. Yeah, it's cute. It's yeah, everybody's, co- like, you know, consenting to be part of that tag pre- uh, by assumption because they are interacting with it in a mm. way that makes them feel comfortable. And yeah. I really like that. That's awesome. Cool, cool. All right. So, I mean, if anyone's interested, do check that out. And um, well, thanks for listening. And we'll uh, see you next week for another episode. And I think we might be coming up to episode number 50, Therusha. Is that right? Oh. So I've been told. Yeah. That's what I've been told. Yeah. I haven't really kept up with it. No. But, um, yeah, someone is telling me we're coming up to number 50. You know? I don't know, man. Maybe to have some party music to begin with or <laughs> some 50 Cent or something. Yeah. Cool. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right, then. All right, then. Bye, Thank everyone. Thank you so much, guys. This <laughs> yeah. has been really nice. Yeah. It's been really fun. That's what it Okay, then. Bye. Bye.